He is risen. <laughs> you can go ahead and be seated. Good morning. I want to welcome you here today on this Resurrection Sunday. Those of you online, we welcome you as well. So glad that you're joining with us. This is our first service, and we are going to have the prophecy update today. Second service, uh, we're currently going through the book of James. However, today will be the Resurrection Sunday sermon. And I realize that this title of Jesus is our only escape may seem odd for a Resurrection Sunday sermon, but we're going to connect the dots of this to the resurrection as the purpose of the resurrection. Also, for those that are uh, watching online, by the way, second service will be at 11.15 a.m. Uh, Hawaii time. And if you're watching this live, we would encourage you to go directly to the website, uh, jdfrog.org. There you will find the uncensored uh, uninterrupted entirety of today's update, which we're going to get to right now. I want to talk with you about how it is and why it is that the time has now come for every one of us, myself included, to face reality. And by face reality, I mean no longer can we or should we avoid the reality of what's happening in the world today, despite the many distractions, all of which clamor for our attention on a daily basis. For one to avoid facing this reality can mean the difference between life and death, and infinitely more importantly, heaven or hell. Doubtless many of you already know where I'm going with this, so I'm going to start with a scripture that will also talk about second service, Genesis 3.15, which is not only the first prophecy in the Bible, so too is it the first mention of the gospel in the Bible, the proto-evangelical, which means the first gospel, the first mention of the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Actually, Genesis sums up human history in three ways in the first three chapters. The creation of man, the sin of man, and the redemption of man. And then you reach this zenith of sorts in verse 15 of chapter 3, and we read, as God now pronounces the curse upon the serpent. And He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and very important, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise, some of your translations render it crush, I like crush better, 
crush your head. <laughs> A lot better than bruise your head. I like crush, way better. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Wow. So packed, so full of so much, you know, woven into the fabric of this prophecy, this gospel first presented here is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus Christ, which we're of course going to talk about, which is when Jesus will crush the head of this serpent, but not before the serpent bruises his heel. That's the crucifixion. He will bruise his heel is speaking of the crucifixion, but He's going to crush your head. When He was resurrected, He defeated death, He defeated the devil, and He's going to come back and finally once and for all, for all eternity, crush the head of the serpent. I can't wait. Okay, I think you would agree with me that John 3.16 is the most well-known verse in all the Bible, right? Um, I know this is deeply profound, but verses 14 and 15 come before verse 16. What does it say in verse 14, John 3? It says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent, in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, question. What happened in the wilderness that was of such importance and that would rise to the level of having Jesus reference it here in what we know today as the most popular and known verse in all of Scripture? Answer, Numbers chapter 21. I love the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers gets a lot, a lot of bad press. For those of you that were with us through our study, verse by verse of the book of Numbers, one of the most fascinating studies in all the Bible. I know I say that about every book, but particularly the book of Numbers. Why? Because at, at first, you, you, what's, what's the book of Numbers about? Sounds very boring. And it doesn't help when you say, well, the book of Numbers is about Numbers. <laughs> And, uh, but when you get into this book, there's so much that is recorded for us. And this account here in chapter 21 is such that the Savior would reference it as a prophecy that would point to Him. Okay, let's begin in verse 4. Then they, speaking of the Israelites, journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea 
to go around the land of Edom. This is modern day Jordan. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. That's kind of an understatement. <laughs> and verse 5, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Woo! So that's a reference to the manna. So what's the Lord's response? Verse 6, so the Lord <laughs> sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it, shall live. So, verse 9, Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. They were saved. This serpent on the pole was not only referenced by Jesus, it also paints a powerful prophetic picture of salvation found in Jesus. I want to just share with you, this is not exhaustive, but here is the prophetic typology, and it's the answer to the question of why this would rise to the level of the Savior Himself referencing this account that we just read. It points to Him. The serpent in the garden got Eve to look upon the tree, just as Jesus would have us look upon the cross. The serpent, of course, is a picture of sin. Jesus died as payment for our sin. He took upon Himself our sin. He became sin for us and died for us. Interesting detail, by the way, bronze in Scripture is a medal of judgment, a type of judgment. Jesus took the judgment upon Himself for us instead of us. The bronze snake is lifted up and put on the pole. 
Jesus was lifted up and he was put on the cross as judgment for our sin. And this is interesting and it's actually throughout the pages of Holy Writ. You'll find the cross from the very beginning. This pole was in the shape of a cross generations before the Romans would invent crucifixion as one of the most cruel and merciless ways of putting someone to death. Even when in the construction of the tabernacle, the arrangement of the seven, the number of completion furnishings in that tabernacle and subsequently the temple in the shape of a cross. When the priests in their priestly service would make the offerings, they would make the wave offering. And it's not, you know, the wave offering. It's north, south, east, west in the shape of a cross. These are just a few of numerous examples. In fact, here's one, speaking of the book of Numbers, right out of the chute. I want to say it's about Numbers chapter 6 where we have the numbers of the Israelites in their camps. I mean, it's, uh, that's what the book of Numbers is about, the numbers, right? We have the actual numbers. And it's recorded for us that you have a number of Israelites, you have 12 tribes divided into four camps, and to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. And here's the number of the ones camped to the south. Here's the number of the ones camped to the north. Here's the number of the ones camped to the east. Here's the number of the ones camped to the west. And the tabernacle is right smack in the middle. You see where this is going? <laughs> this is John. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That formation of those numbers at first read seemingly very boring is very powerful. Because those camps in those numbers was in the shape of a cross. Fast forward to Numbers 22, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible, along with all the other chapters that are my favorite in all of the Bible. <laughs> we have this account of a guy by the name of uh, uh, I'm getting them confused, Balaam or Balaam, and this guy by the name of Balak, who paid Balaam big bucks to pronounce a curse on the Israelites. Why? Because they were threatened by the numbers of the Israelites. So he's hired to pronounce a curse upon them. And he's like, okay, sure. So he gets on his donkey. You know, this is a true story. It's not based on a true story. This actually happened. One of the reasons it's my favorite story is because as a pastor, if God can speak through a donkey, <laughs> He can speak through an Arab donkey too, I guess, right? So he gets on his donkey and heads out to pronounce this curse. And of course, the donkey tries to stop him and like, what are you doing? Are you kidding me right now? I mean, that's a very loose paraphrase. He didn't really say it like that. But 
And it's not so much that the donkey spoke to Balaam, it's that Balaam talks back to the donkey. Anyway, Numbers 22, it's, uh, wow. So he ends up, you know, getting back on the donkey, getting on his way, and he makes an attempt to pronounce this curse on the Israelites, the camp of the Israelites, already camped in the shape of a cross. And he starts, and what comes out of his mouth? I mean, a blessing. I mean, it's, you can read what came out of his mouth, and it is just so glorious and magnificent, this blessing that is pronounced upon the Israelites. Even he's stunned. And of course, uh, Balak isn't too happy with him either. Hey, uh, dude, I'm paying you big bucks to curse these people because they're growing in numbers. And what do you do? Instead, you just bless him. He's like, I don't know what's going on here. I, it just came out. I, I was going to pronounce a curse on them, but it didn't happen. So here's Balak saying, okay, I know. Let's go to a higher mountaintop so you have a better view of this camp so that you can pronounce the blessing. So, I mean the curse. So he goes to this high vantage point where he's got probably full view of all of those Israelites in those great numbers in that formation of that camp with the tabernacle slash Christ in the center. And what comes out? Oh, it's even better. Magnificent blessing upon the people. Why couldn't He curse them? Because of the finished work of the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation, no guilt, no curse for those that are in Christ Jesus. You cannot, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Why? Because of the finished work on the cross. There's no curse. There's no wrath. There's no anger. He took all of the anger, all of the curse of sin, all of the wrath on Him, and He went willingly to that cross. And He paid the price for us instead of us. And that's why today, if you're here today or watching online, and you've let the enemy get away with this, it stops right here, and it stops right now. Nice try, buckaroo. By the way, I checked. It's not, a, it's not bad to say buckaroo. I think it's uh, Mexican for a little boy, but I digress. <laughs> so this, uh, one last one, the Passover, which is what the resurrection is a celebration of because Jesus was the Passover lamb. He fulfilled the Passover prophecy. You remember the Passover, the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn son? Hmm. And if you had, by the way, I hope you'll stay with me and 
to the end, I have something so powerful I want to share by way of a testimony today concerning the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb. So the Israelites were to take the blood of a Lamb that was without wrinkle, spot, blemish. They had to inspect that Lamb for four days, the exact amount of time that Jesus was on trial, found to be without sin, without blemish. And then they would take that lamb, that innocent lamb, and they would slit its throat and shed its blood. And they were to take a hyssop branch, interesting, a lot of typology there. They would dip it in that blood and they would put it on the doorposts of their house. So the angel of death would pass over them, they would be saved. And that blood on the doorposts of their house was top, basin at the bottom, left and right in the shape of a cross. So here comes the angel of death. You got the cross. You got the blood of the Lamb passes over. So this pole that Moses takes this bronze snake and puts it on is in the shape of a cross. Just as Jesus was put on that cross to pay for in the finished work of the cross. And it even gets better because the snake was horizontal on a vertical pole. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the cross is there. How do I get there? The first five are vertical. The second five, horizontal. So here's Jesus, fully man, fully God. Man, horizontal, God, vertical. And this was the only way to be saved, slash healed. Jesus is the only way of salvation. There's no other way to the Father except through Him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man goes to the Father except through me. And one more thing on this. Again, it's not exhaustive. I would encourage you, if you're into typology, this is a fascinating study. But can you imagine the Israelites as these fiery serpents are biting them and killing them and poisoning them and they're dying. And then Moses says, you guys, all you have to do is look at that bronze serpent on this cross and you'll be saved. Well, that seems foolish. Ah, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Wait, you mean to tell me that all I have to do is by faith, as, as foolish as it might seem, is just look to that serpent on that cross and I'll be saved? Yeah. Yeah, it's that simple. Seems foolish, yeah? Well, to those who's, who, is, who are perishing, it is. One last one, and this is where we're going to kind of get into the, the matter at hand, if I can say it like that. The serpent on the pole 
became an idolatrous symbol. It had to be, they started worshiping it actually. <laughs> and so too, the modern day medical symbol is corrupted and idolatrous as pictured here. Notice very interesting, two snakes, hmm. I don't know where these wings came from or what they're about, but it is one snake that is hanging on a cross. And they've corrupted it and turned it into that which represents modern medicine. If you'll kindly allow me to, I'll do my best with the help of the Holy Spirit <laughs> to explain how all of this is actually playing out in the world today. And in order to do that, we'll go ahead at this time and end the live stream on YouTube and Facebook. So by way of a preface, I need to proceed with the presupposition that you understand, as we just read, that this is all about the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, which by the way, women don't have seeds, they have eggs. That is a prophecy about the birth of the Savior. The woman is Eve, from her seed would come this virgin birth, miraculously, of the Savior of the world that would ultimately and finally crush the head of the serpent. Are we good? Do you, you get that, right? This is between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, with that understanding, it's important to also understand that Satan has attempted from the very beginning to corrupt and alter the human DNA with his seed. Why? To render man no longer human. I know I run the risk of an oversimplification when I say this, but the reason Satan attempts to do this is so that the seed of the woman, Jesus, could not come from a pure human lineage. Were he to have succeeded, he'll never succeed. He's going to try again. He tried to thwart the first coming of Christ. And certainly he'll try to thwart the rapture and the second coming of Christ, the same way he did in the days of Noah. So he's trying to alter the human DNA, not only to thwart the coming of the Savior, but moreover, man was created in the image of God and as such can only be redeemed by the Savior who was both fully God and fully man. 
is for this reason, yet future, please, please, yet future, not now. When the mark of the beast, not now, when the mark of the beast is forced on people, great and small, rich and poor, and they take that mark, they are condemned for all eternity. Why? Because it is the seed of the serpent altering the human DNA of man created in the image of God. It is believed that the human DNA actually has not just the name of God in our human DNA, but it is actually the code. And the name is the nature. We are made in His image. He created us in His image with human DNA. So Satan is trying to corrupt that with his seed, as we just read in the aforementioned verse, Genesis 3.16. Okay. Enter this Stu Peters interview with a Dr. Brian Artis on Monday that since has gone viral, as they say. No pun intended, I guess. But after viewing it, I reached out to Mike Montgomery, who is Stu Peters' pastor at Calvary Chapel Red Wing in Minnesota. By the way, pray for Stu Peters, pray for this Dr. Brian Artis as well. So I asked him to ask Stu on my behalf for permission to share this. I also wanted to know if there was a uh, transcript. I wanted more documentation. And by the way, we uh, provided a link to this video and also uh, others that I want to mention here in a moment. So for those of you who have not yet viewed this, I would really encourage you to do so. According to Dr. Artis's research, there is compelling evidence that this so-called COVID-19 virus is actually king cobra venom poisoning. Now, for those of you like me who want to see the documentation and want to vet it, that's a must. We've also included links to Mike Adams' three interviews. It's about three hours in length. It's on Brideon, and he goes into great detail with very detailed documentation. Now, please know that I've spent the better part of three days vetting this. Actually, last night I spent quite a bit of time on this as well. And while there are many questions that still remain unanswered, I have to say that his research and documentation seems credible. 
So, again, I would really encourage you to take the time for yourself and do your own research on this by virtue of the implications of this. Suffice it to say that if true, this is a game changer in every sense of the word, and for a number of reasons, not the least of which is what we just got done talking about, the scriptures we just got done reading. But even more importantly, what Jesus said about the days of Noah, specifically that it would be like it was in the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, so too will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So one need look no further than to, again, the book of Genesis, to know what was going on in the days of Noah. Oh, Genesis chapter 6 says there was gene manipulation of the human DNA vis-a-vis -vis the Nephilim to corrupt the human DNA. And this is why God destroyed and judged the world the first time, save Noah. And this is why we're told, and bear with me, I'll do my best again by the help of the Holy Spirit. He always helps me. I think the Lord feels sorry for me, so He has to, but it's, it's Unfortunate, I guess, for lack of a better word, when you're reading it in the translations of the English language, because you miss what it says in the original. There's a very interesting word that is used to describe Noah. It says that he was upright or righteous or perfect, as some translations render it. Well, that word in the original language of the Hebrew Old Testament is the word tamim. It's very similar to the Arabic word in my native language, tamam. What does that word mean? Well, if you were to ask me how I'm doing and I were to respond to you in Arabic, I would say something to you along the lines of kul ishi tamam. What did I just say? Everything is perfect, intact, complete. And then it even gets more specific, because of Noah we're told that he was intact, tamam, tamim, perfect, complete in his generations. Again, unfortunate, because that word can be translated genetics. So let's read it like this. The reason why Noah and his family were saved is because their genetics were still intact and had not been corrupted or altered. They were still intact genetically. So they're saved. Well, fast forward. Jesus told us that it would be like it was in the days of Noah and the evil in the days of Noah. 
The things unspeakable, it would, it would be like the Apostle Paul said, it would be, it, it's, it's unspeakable to even speak of the evil. I mean, fast forward to today, are you kidding me? So there, there's a rather lengthy list of things that you can compare in our day to the days of Noah. And I think what you'll find conclusively is that we are living in a day that is exactly like it was in the days of Noah. Down to even this. And doubtless there's going to be a lot of discussion, and rightfully so, concerning these findings. And of course there will be those, you know, it's always for me the litmus test, especially having been on the receiving end of this kind of thing. When you can't refute the content, you attack the character. Be very discerning, please, especially in this regard. Absent evidence to the contrary, this could very well be exactly what's going to happen. And if that's the case, and this is like Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, then I ask you in all sincerity, as lovingly and as humbly as I possibly can, how close are we? I truly believe that we are so close, that trumpet's going to sound. We're going to talk about this in the Resurrection Sunday sermon. But I truly believe that at any moment the trumpet is going to sound, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. All of those loved ones that went to be with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. They're going to have their new bodies first. And then we who were alive and remain, Paul writing to the Corinthians in chapter 15, I think it is, verses 51 and 52, I'm probably wrong. He describes it as really a metamorphosis in the original language, where we put off corruptible in the twinkling of an eye, not a blink, twinkling. I mean, it's, it's a fraction of 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 a second, to put it into perspective. We're going to put off our old bodies, and we're going to get our new bodies. That alone, can I get a witness on that one? <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to get our new bodies, and we're going to meet the Lord in the air. Listen, what I'm, what I'm speaking of here, what I've been teaching for many years here, this is true. This is not pie in the sky, again, no pun intended. <laughs> oh, we'll be in the sky. I hope there's pie. I love pie, but this is real. I'll even take it a step further and say that the rapture is more real than the comfortable chairs you're sitting on here today. 
That's how real it is. And that's how close it is. See, God doesn't want us to be ignorant concerning His return. And again, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. But this is why we end these updates with the gospel, the good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what the word gospel means. Good news. Your debt has been paid. You're free to go. Wait, what debt? What payment? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Oh, you didn't know? No, that's the good news. Well, in order for the good news to be good, there must be bad news. Oh yeah, there's really bad news. I know this isn't proper English, but the badder the bad news is, the gooder the good news will be. And such is the case with the gospel. The gospel or good news is that Jesus was crucified, He was buried, and He rose again on the third day. And don't stop there, please. He's coming back again one day. Good news. Good news. That's the gospel. So these ABCs of salvation, we've been doing this for, well, it's been a number of years now. Every week, very simple, childlike simple. Jesus said, you must become like a, a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not childish, childlike simple. It's just the simple gospel of salvation. And it's actually, we say affectionately, it's as simple as ABC. It's actually simpler than ABC. It's as simple as B, believe. But the A is what brings you to the B. Again, I know deeply profound, like verses 14 and 15 come before 16, but the A is for admit or acknowledge that you're a sinner. Because if you think about it, why would you need the Savior if you're not a sinner? Can we just talk real quick about what it means to be a sinner? What it means to be a sinner is, is that we have missed the mark. In fact, it's an archery term. Uh, back in the day, you would shoot the arrow, and if you missed the bullseye, they would say that you sinned, because you missed the mark, the perfect bullseye of God's standard of righteousness. That's what sin means. You've fallen short, missed the mark. And here's the thing, we've all sinned. <laughs> Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. And Romans 3.23 tells us why. It's because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. We were all born sinners, which is why we must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Romans 6.23 is interesting because it packages the bad news first with the good news. So, okay, I'm a sinner. Um, what does that mean? Well, there's going to be a penalty for that sin. What's the penalty? The death penalty. Boy, that really is bad news, isn't it? Yeah. And the way Paul, by the Holy Spirit, writes in Romans 6.23 is that the wages, that's what you earn, 
keyword, wages. You, you earned it. <laughs> what did I earn? What's death? Oh, because the wages of sin is death. But, and here's the good news, and I want you to notice the contrast between the word wages and the word gift. Because the good news is, is that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. On this Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the risen Lord who came for us, died instead of us on that cross to pay in full for all of our sin. We are not our own. We are purchased. What did it cost him? Everything. It cost him his life. So he purchased this gift. You know how it is when you purchase a gift for somebody? And you give it to them, right? And what do they do with it? They re-gift it. That's what they do with it. <laughs> but you don't pay for it, because if you pay for it, it's not a gift. It's a purchase. No, he paid for it. You don't pay for it. It's a gift. Paid for. All you have to do is receive it and open it and accept it. What's the gift? Oh, eternal life? And he's already paid for it? And he offers it to me as a gift? Yeah. Boy, that's really good news, especially considering the alternative. <laughs> because choice A, death. B, gift of eternal life. Okay, okay, just give me, give me a second here. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Choose life. Choose life. I'll, I'll take what's behind door number two. Thank you very much. That's the A. This is the B. It's simply for believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. For God so loved the world, as we just read, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe. That's it. Wait, do I have to do anything? No. Do I have uh, to go through a course? No. Do I have to, no, this is just come as you are. It reminds me of that story. It's a humorous story. I think it's apropos. This uh, woman wanted to become a member of this church. She had given her life to Christ and loved the Lord and wanted to grow in the Lord. And so she goes to this church and she wants to become a member of this church. So she asks the clergy, I hate that word clergy, but you know, what do I need to do be, to become a member? And they say, well, we have this 12-week course that you need to start with and complete. So she completes the 12-week course. She's so excited. Okay, now I can be a member. And she goes back and they say, no, now we have this other, uh, you know, a study that you need to complete. And then once you complete that, so she completes it. She's so excited and she's ready to become a member. And then she goes back and they say, no, now we have this that you need to do. And this went on and on. And finally she just, <laughs> she's sitting in this park bench and 
just crying out to the Lord, Lord, I just, I just wanted to be a member of this church. And the Lord just speaks to her and says, Oh, my beloved, I haven't been able to get into that church either. <laughs> I think you get the point. You come as you are, believe in your heart. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will, notice the specificity of will, be saved. The, the jury is not out. The verdict is in. Oh, wh wh what's the verdict? Well, <laughs> guilty as charged. I've broken God's law. I've fallen short of His perfect standard of righteousness, and I only have to break one, and I'm already guilty. So what's your plea? Guilty. Okay, we need to enter the sentencing phase. What's the sentence? It's the death sentence. And just as the judge of the universe pronounces this death sentence on you in that courtroom of, of eternity, in walks a man, no ordinary man. This is the God-man, fully God, fully man. And he says to that judge of the universe, hold it, not so fast, stop everything. I will die for him, for her. And the judge of the universe in that courtroom of eternity turns to you and says, good news, your debt has been paid, you're free to go. He paid it for you. No, you will be saved. The verdict is in. The debt has been paid. It is finished, period. Please don't put a comma there, as some do. Sadly, there's nothing we have to do. There's nothing you can do. He, he already did it. He already paid it. The C, lastly, is for call upon the name of the Lord. Or as Romans 10, 9 and 10 also says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And here's why. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And lastly, Romans 10, 13. And see, this is the expression. I mean, I want you to think this through with me. I know this might seem, again, very simplistic, but you're not going to call on someone you don't believe in, right? Is not prayer the expression of faith? I mean, if you really don't believe in Him, why would you call upon Him? I mean, what, every time you and I pray, it is the ultimate expression of faith. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence, by the way, key word, evidence, of things yet unseen. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, 
says that we are saved by grace through faith. It took faith on the part of the Israelites to look upon that bronze serpent on that cross to be saved. You're saved. That's God's grace by faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And boy, would we ever boast. Could you imagine what heaven would be like if we did something to get there, and then once we got there, we could boast about it? That wouldn't be heaven. <laughs> that might be the other place, but let's not go there. Romans 10, 13, here it is again, and it's an expression of believing in your heart. Now you're going to call upon the one in whom you believe. And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Done deal. You know, we, we uh, say, nothing wrong with it. I gave my life to Christ. Praise the Lord. All of heaven is rejoicing, we're told in Scripture, right? When one sinner repents. <laughs> we know that from Scripture, that at least in heaven, whenever someone comes to Christ, there's rejoicing in heaven. That we know. So we say, I gave my life to Christ. I think the bigger miracle is that He took it. Now just stay with me. 40 years ago, <laughs> I called upon the name of the Lord and I was saved. And I gave my life to Christ. And I know this is a humorous way to illustrate it, but I think it, it's appropriate. I, I call upon the name of the Lord. I give my life to Christ. He actually accepted me. He took me. I, maybe the angels given charge concerning me might have said something to the effect, I don't know if I'd take that one. That's not a very good deal. You might want to reconsider this one. No, He took me. I was saved because of that word will, not might, not could, not should. No, will be saved. All who call will be saved. Well, Thanks for your patience. I want to share with you this testimony. It's um, a little bit different. I think you'll see why. I actually spent some time last night vetting this, and it's true. It comes from Marion Amperin. I again hope I'm pronouncing your name right. She writes, hi again, Pastor Frog. Sorry to bother you, but I think this is important to follow up with my previously sent email. A friend of mine forwarded it to me, and I really like it in light of the depressing news about snake venom. <laughs> I copied what she sent and am pasting it here. A rattlesnake bit one of my sheep in the face about a week ago. Deadliest snake that lives around here. The sheep's face swelled up and hurt her terribly. but. The old rattlesnake didn't know the kind of blood that flows through the sheep. Anti-venom is most often made from sheep's blood. The sheep swelled for about two days, but the blood of the lamb 
destroyed the venom of the serpent. Yeah. So last night I'm like, okay, let's see about this before I, sure enough, article after article about how they actually make anti-venom out of the blood of a lamb. Okay, chicken skin right there. Or should I say lambskin? Maybe lambskin. She goes on, I was worried, but <laughs> the sheep didn't care. She kept on eating, kept on drinking, kept on climbing, because she knew she was all right. Often the serpents of this life will reach out and bite us. They inject their poison into us, but they cannot overcome the blood of the Lamb that washes away the sin of the world and the sting of death. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't worry about the serpent or his bite. Just make sure that the Lamb's blood is flowing through your veins. I just Google searched lamb or sheep and snake bite and saw lots of stories that indicate the blood of sheep is anti-venom. Interesting. Peace and love, Marion. I want to share with you one last uh, story. Go ahead, Capone, if you'll come on up. You remember in Acts 28, when Paul is shipwrecked on his way to Rome, and he ends up on the island of Malta. He did not know on the itinerary God had a stop on the island of Malta, because he wanted the islanders to get saved. So they get shipwrecked. All of the men on board are saved. It's really a powerful uh, account. So they are on shore, and the islanders are building this fire. Paul, we're told, very interesting, helps them build the fire. And in the process of putting wood on the fire, out comes a viper from the heat and attaches itself and affixes itself to his arm and bites him, injecting this poisonous venom. And what does Paul do? Shakes it off. And we're told that he suffered no ill effects. And the islanders are like, wait a minute. First when he got bit, they're like, the gods are punishing him. And then after he shakes it off and doesn't die, as all of their loved ones that would be bitten by these snakes would die, and nothing happens, he goes from being a criminal to being a god. They start, <laughs> Paul's like, stop. I, I am not God, but let me tell you about the true and living God. And all of those islanders got saved. I want to leave you with Genesis 50-20, especially for those of you who are watching all of this, as am I. And I have to confess that there were a couple of times this last week where I just had to walk away and pray, and that's a good thing. I'm like, Lord, I mean, wow, really? Wow. And the Lord just reminded me 
of Genesis 50, 20. Yeah, this is really evil. This is really evil. What you're doing, Joseph said to his brothers, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good, for the salvation of many this day. That's what God is doing. Yeah. Once you stand, we'll close in prayer and close in song. Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh. Thank you for your blood, Jesus, shed for us. The blood of the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world power in the blood. Lord, I just want to pray for anyone who may be here today on this Resurrection Sunday or watching online, that has never believed in You, put their trust in You, called upon You. I pray that today, what a day, I mean, what a great day to be the day of their salvation. Please, Lord. Please, Lord. And Lord, please come quickly. It's getting pretty bad. And like you said of the tribulation, <laughs> after the rapture, Thank you, Lord, that were it not for the elect Israel, those days would not be shortened because no flesh would be able to survive. We, we can see that now. So Lord, come quickly. We're waiting, we're watching, and we're listening for that trumpet to sound. Thank you, Lord. Maranatha. In Jesus' name.